Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. really loving the doctrine of the Trinity for a couple of months and in my counseling I've been exploring how wonderful it is to use the doctrine of the Trinity to motivate people to honor the Lord in their daily lives. So today and for the, this week and the next four weeks, so five weeks in a row, I will be speaking about the Trinity and I'll be sharing something of you, something with you of why I find the doctrine of the Trinity is so powerfully motivating in daily life. And I'm sure by the grace of God, God is going to take hold of you through this teaching and He's going to move you, He's going to motivate you and you're going to say, man, this is amazing, I've never seen this before. Yes, I know about the Trinity, but I've never realized the potential, the capacity of the doctrine of the Trinity to motivate me in my daily life. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to give you an overview of what the Bible teaches about God in three persons, the one God in three persons. And then next week I'd like to have a look at uh, God the Father. And then the week after that, the, the Sunday before Christmas, I'd like to have a look at God the Son, obviously. And then the week after Christmas, I'd like to look at God the Holy Spirit, all focusing on the doctrine of the Trinity, and then the very final sermon, the, the New Year's Sunday, we'd like to look at the Trinity in, in glory, in, in eternity future. So we're really been, we're looking at the Trinity from eternity past, if we can even use those words. We're looking at eternity through this created order, through time in this world. And then we're looking at the Trinity in, in the ages to come after this period of the history of the world has come to an end. So maybe I could just uh, ask God to help us today before we start and then share with you something of the encouragement that's in my heart uh, because of this doctrine today. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are the God of creation. And thank you that this creation has purpose. You didn't just think it would be nice to have a created order, a universe, a world, populated with human beings. But Lord, thank you that every single little thing has purpose. And we look around us today, even at the strangest thing, there's glitter all over the floor, all over the stage, all over even the pulpit, all over our hands and in people's hair, we're sort of seeing glitter everywhere. And isn't it amazing, Lord, to us that even every single little piece of glitter that lies in this hall today has purpose. We don't know what its purpose is, but Lord, we know that there's nothing outside of your all-seeing eye that is outside of your purpose. Every single little molecule has its purpose. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look at the Trinity today to be motivated in our lives right down to the point where we even consider one little piece of glitter. And we say, wow, isn't it amazing that this is the God of order? This is the God of purpose. This is the God that purposes everything for His glory and for our good forever and ever and ever. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be astounded by you, astounded by the triune God. And we pray, Lord, even from this doctrine, that you would help us to draw wonderful, wonderful applications today. We just pray these things as we commend ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' lovely name, amen. All right, so obviously you've heard about the Trinity. And uh, you'll notice this nice picture that I've got on the screen here. This picture is uh, one of my attempts at artificial intelligence. I, I generated this thing using AI. And I was telling it to, to create a spectacular view of the universe. And then having created a spectacular view of the universe, 
to be viewing it from a glorious paradise garden on earth. So that's what kind of what AI is telling us. You see the beautiful rivers, you see clouds, you see trees, you see forests, you see this spiral galaxy in the middle. And even this, even all of the stuff that artificial intelligence has managed to squash into this picture. I was really amazed. Even a waterfall in the clouds somewhere. Um, even with all of that stuff squashed in, it hardly represents even a tiny fraction of the God of glory. So today we're going to look at something of the God of glory in whose mind all of these amazing things exist. Obviously fictional in this picture, but it stirs, it stirs your mind, doesn't it? Makes you think, doesn't it? It's beautiful. Made me think. So I'd like to begin today, as we speak about the Trinity, to, sta- to open up with these three summary statements. This is going to be very concise today. Three summary statements. When you believe in the Trinity, the one thing we're going to look at, the first thing we're going to look at, is the one statement that God is three persons. God is three persons. And we have a diagram here. You can see the three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's clear to us. You know, things get a little bit confusing as we move on. But at least we can start with this diagram. This is the number one fact that you have to believe if you want to believe the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. That's the starting point. Because as you know, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity anywhere. And the Bible doesn't in any specific verse say that God is three in one. But the first thing that you notice as you're reading the Bible is, isn't it interesting that there's, there's a person in the Bible called the Father... There's a person in the Bible called the Son, and there's a person in the Bible called the Holy Spirit. And then as you read about those three persons, those three diverse persons, you suddenly notice that all three of these persons are called God. You say, isn't that fascinating? That brings us to the second point. So we notice there's three persons, and in the next slide... We come to the next phrase, uh, next statement, and it says, each person is fully God. So you can see our, our diagram beginning to emerge here. If you want to think of the Trinity, this is a very good diagram that's been developed over the centuries. You know, as theologians have tried to show us what Trinity looks like, so that we don't get confused and leave out some part that would make us heretics. So remember, the first statement is God is three persons. There's three persons. And then secondly, each one of those persons is fully God. So as you read through the Bible, you'll notice the Father is God. You say, that's amazing. Well, maybe that means the Son and the Spirit are not God. And as you read, you find out that the Bible teaches that the Son is God. And you say, wow, that's amazing. So there's a God, and sometimes He's called the Father, and sometimes He's called the Son. You say, oh no. That's not true because the Bible distinguishes between the Father and the Son. So you say, well, that helped me to avoid a trap. So you'll notice there, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And obviously this diagram works the other way too, doesn't it? God is the Father and God is the Son and God is the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping this diagram is going to help you to keep this in mind clearly. You know, whenever you're thinking of the Trinity or whenever you're debating it, there are a lot of people that you'll meet on the streets and you discuss this with them. uh, They will have a problem with the Trinity. And if you keep this diagram in your mind, especially as we develop it, you're going to discover that anybody who brings false teaching about God to you, that question is likely answered in this diagram, in this image. So what's the third primary statement that we have to believe about God. And the third statement is that there is one God. You're like, ah, oh, man, I thought I had it. I thought I had it. There's, a, there's three gods. But hold on, there's one God. We have three persons, but we have one God. We've got God the Father, we've got God the Son, and we've got God the Holy Spirit, and each one of them is fully God, but that doesn't mean that there are three gods, there's one God. So I'm hoping these three statements are going to make it clear to you in your thinking 
that we don't have three gods, we have one God, but this one God is three persons, and each one of those persons is God. I mean, talk about difficult to understand. But then, the interesting thing is, that as we look at these three persons, and we move on to the next stage of our reasoning, and what the Bible teaches us about the Trinity, is that these three persons are distinct. So, for example, if we move to the next picture, you see we've added an, an outer ring to our diagram. And this really helps us to clarify even more. So notice that the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. You can see how the connectors work. You've got the is, is, is in the middle, and you've got is not, is not, is not on the outside. That, that helps to clarify the reasoning, doesn't it? The Son, if you look at the diagram, is not the Father. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And then when you move down to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. We don't mix the persons of the Godhead together and make one God in such a way that the persons of the Godhead are indistinguishable. No, they are distinct there is diversity in the Godhead. The member, the persons of the Godhead are all different persons. But not so different where we say that they are not one God. We've got one God and three persons. And if you can work this out in your head, you know, if you can say, oh, I get that, then I'm afraid your God is too small. Imagine a God, like some theologians have said, imagine a God that we could comprehend in our little brains. Imagine we could just get everything about God. That would mean my brain, my mind is infinite. But isn't it wonderful that there's mystery even in, in this one basic teaching about God? I find it fascinating. It's wonderful to know that when I see God and God begins to reveal more things about Himself to me, I'm going to say, wow, I didn't know anything when I was on earth. I had no idea how this worked. It was so confusing to me. Thank you, God, for helping me to understand more about you. And it's going to drive worship in my heart. Thank God that He doesn't reveal all of the details. But He's revealed enough for us so that we can worship God and also avoid error. Somebody comes with, for example, I didn't mean to say this, but there's a, there's a theory about God called modalistic monarchianism. You know, like somebody will come to you and say, so there's God in heaven, and then God comes as the Father, and then when God goes away, He sends the Son, and the Son comes, He just take, changes His clothes and comes with a different name. It's the same God, one God, but He's presenting Himself to people in different names. Almost like a restaurant, you know, where the chef is in the kitchen cooking the food. But a moment ago, he was the waiter taking the order. And then later on, the chef is washing the dishes. So you've got three different roles, but one chef. And that's wrong, obviously, isn't it? Because there's diversity in the God. There are three persons. It's not just one God coming back in three different uniforms. There are three different persons. And these three different persons are individual persons in their own right. Yet they are one God. And I'm telling you, if you want to worship God, you can just think about this for a while. And don't expect to ever fully comprehend this. Because the Bible teaches that these three basic statements are true. And believers are required to believe them. And say, even if I can't work out how this can be true, uh, God requires me to believe it. And that's wonderful. It takes faith, doesn't it? it takes me to say, God, I'm, my brain's not big enough to understand you. So I depend on you. That this is true and I'm going to believe it. You know that statement some people use. You know, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. So for me, I say, God said it, that settles it. <laughs> you know, it's just a fact. If God said it, it's true. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It's, it's, it settles the issue. And I look at it and I say, God said it, that settles it. I believe it. Okay, so God is three persons. That's where we start. Each of those three persons is fully God in the Bible. And then the Bible really 
breaks the boundaries of our minds and says there is one God. And you just keep going around and around in your head trying to work this out. And eventually you've got to say, God, that is amazing. That is wonderful. You exist in a glorious form. So let's have a look at those three statements. And firstly, we look at the fact that the Father is God. Let's go through these three statements, the three basic statements. And we see that in Scripture, in Genesis 1 verse 1, you begin with, obviously this verse begins with a most glorious statement about a person that can be no other than the glorious Creator God. This is the Father. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we're looking at God the Father, the glorious Father, the Creator God, who speaks and everything comes into existence. In Romans 1 verse 7, Paul speaks about God our Father. He clearly calls the Father God. In 1 Corinthians 15 24, um, Paul is speaking in that glorious resurrection chapter about how the Lord Jesus Christ, the agent that God is using to govern this world, is going to come to a point where he hands this whole kingdom back to who? God the Father. So scripture clearly teaches us that the Father is God. He's called God the Father. Then we move on to God the Son. What does the Bible say about God the Son? Many people have said that the Bible doesn't teach that the Son is God, that Jesus is God. John 1 verse 1 teaches us that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I mean, He's eternal. He possesses the attributes of God. In verses 9 to 18 of John chapter 1, John writes, The world did not receive its Creator. I mean, these are not John's words. But the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The monogenes in the Greek, the, the only born Son. The only one, the only Son of the Father. And this is the Word. It's the Word. The Word of God. He's eternal. He exists eternally with God and John 1 clearly calls him God he was God he is God Hebrews 1 verse 8 and 10 the writer to the Hebrews is quoting the Psalms when he says your throne who's he talking about Hebrews 1 is all about Jesus it's all about the Son of God and the Father is saying your throne O God the Father is speaking to the Son when God calls Jesus God, when God calls the Son, where God the Father calls God the Son God, He says, your, thr- your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. In verse 9, He says, therefore God, your God, the Father, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And then in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we've got Paul speaking about the Son, and he says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Could the Bible be any more explicit about the fact that the Son, that Jesus Christ, is God? I mean, there's more. I just put in a few verses in each of these slides so we wouldn't get lost in the forest. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing as you see the words of God before you and you say isn't this thrilling that this is true that there are three persons each of those persons the bible is showing are fully god but there's one god diversity and unity you know three persons one god what about the holy spirit the bible also teaches that the holy spirit is god you see the holy spirit in matthew 28 Verse 19, you remember that great commission section where Jesus comes and he says to his disciples that they must baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here we see the Holy Spirit grouped with God the Father and God the Son as an equal in the same category. In Acts chapter 5, I love this text, in Acts chapter 5, you remember you've got the story of Ananias and Sapphira. When they sell their land 
And they come to the apostles and they say, this is all the money we got for the land. And they try and deceive the apostles into thinking that they were being generous and magnanimous. You know, giving them like selfless and giving all of their money to the church. Look at us. We, you know, we're really going out on a limb here. We sold everything and now we're giving it to the church. Meanwhile, their pockets are full of some of the money that they kept. So they, they're trying to deceive the church. They're trying to deceive the apostles. And what is... What does the text say there? That Ananias, when he came in, he was lying not to men, but to the Holy Spirit. And then later on he says, you haven't lied to men, but you've lied to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. That's a good text. And then 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, Paul declares that believers are God's temple. And what does that mean? If the Holy Spirit lives in you. It means that the Holy Spirit is God. If God is, if the Holy Spirit is living in you, He's tabernacling in you, but, and you are God's temple, it means that the Holy Spirit is God. And that's wonderful. So there we've got some biblical proof, some biblical evidence, that these two first statements are true, that we've got... Three persons, the Bible has spoken about the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the second statement that each one of those, the Bible teaches that each of those persons is fully God. But now we come to the third statement that there is one God. And again, it should say to us, this is confusing, but wonderful at the same time. It's wonderful and thrilling. So logically, now this is, this is where we have problems. Logically, if we only believed in three persons of the Trinity, the diversity in the Trinity, I mean logically, obviously we'd have three gods. Eh? We'd be like the Hindus with millions of gods. But we are not triceists, are we? We don't believe in three gods, do we? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hey? One God. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 5, Moses says there is one God, clearly. In the New Testament we read 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, where Paul is teaching that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God. Romans 3 verse 30, Paul simply says, God is one. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6 also teaches that there is one God. I mean, again and again and again, we've got statements in the New Testament about the one God, the unity of God. In James 2 verse 19, you remember, uh, we read this verse so many times, you believe that there is one God, good James is saying it's a good thing that you believe that there's one God because otherwise we've got three gods. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how do we know who to worship? And how do we worship Him in what way? So I'm hoping it's clear that if somebody comes to you and tells you, no, there's one God and He appears with different uniforms and different names at different times, you know that's wrong because there's one God, but there's three persons. There's a diversity in the Godhead. And if some come, somebody comes to tell you that there are actually three gods, you can say, no, there's unity in the Godhead. So we cannot deny any of these three statements. And this diagram is going to be the most helpful thing that helps you not to wander off into some direction of error. So you've got, you've got the God in the center. You've got the is, is, is coming out of that. You've got the is not, is not, is nots. And this safeguards you from error, from level to level. Okay. But now as Andre was praying before we began, if God is one, and there's three persons in the Godhead, what are the relationships like? I mean, imagine even living with your favorite person forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and you're in each other's personal space without end it's never going to change what are the relationships like between the members between the persons of the trinity and the bible speaks about that as well 
And the more the Bible speaks about the relationship between the members, between the persons of the Trinity, you say, man, I wish I was in a relationship like that. Imagine living that close to somebody forever where you are a different person, but you are one in the fullest sense, even more full than in marriage. You're so close, you're breathing each other's air, but you are distinct persons, but one. There's oneness. And there's a beautiful oneness in the Trinity. Isn't it wonderful to know that there's a closeness, even though God exists in this form, the three in one, that there's a beautiful love. There's a limitless love. God is the God of infinites, isn't He? He's the God of compassion. Imagine, even just that one attribute, imagine living with somebody forever who has compassion. If you're having a bad day, imagine just living with someone who's got compassion on you. Someone who loves you. Someone who is selfless and is self-giving for you. Imagine somebody living with somebody that you can depend on. There will never be a time when you cannot trust this person to do what's good for you and what's kind or merciful for you. Imagine living with somebody forever who's completely trustworthy. I do a lot of marriage counseling and one of the, one of the saddest things in a marriage is when the two partners in a marriage begin to believe that they can't trust each other anymore. I can't trust him, I can't trust her. And just the lack of, just the loss of trust, it shakes a marriage in a terrible way. Imagine this kind of marriage. Imagine this kind of unity where there's never a moment where one member of the Trinity, one person in the Trinity cannot trust the other. Imagine the father sending the son out into the world and he doesn't have a single issue about whether he can trust what his son's going to say about him while he's in his human form. Imagine this complete trust, this complete dependability. The father knows his son is going to do everything to please him all the time. When the Holy Spirit comes and resides in God's people, God can absolutely trust the Holy Spirit to move and motivate that individual in a proper way, every time, always faithfully doing the right thing. God is not afraid that the Spirit of God is going to make a mistake or say, oh, I'll just pretend I didn't see that. He will motivate. He will make us holy. At His own pace and in the right way. And that's wonderful. Imagine the relationships between the persons in the Trinity and think about that. Spend some time thinking about it, how beautiful these relationships are. And imagine how astounding it would be just to know one other person in this world of whom this is true. Any relationship, you, you've never had a relationship like this. Just imagine what it would be like in that relationship. And say, oh, beautiful. And then you've just had your first thought of worship toward God because of the Trinity. Amazing. John Frame says that God glorifies creation. So remember when God creates, He he speaks out a glorious creation. That's why I was putting these creation pictures here, you know, fantastic pictures. When God speaks, this is what He creates, a glorious creation. So when everybody looks at the creation, they say, wow, look at this, man. It bears the finger, fingerprints of God. Every aspect of creation shows the glory of God. So God glorifies, He clothes creation in glory. And when He creates human beings, He's creating a being that's more like Him than any other being in the universe. And even the animals must look at man and say, wow, this being is just like God. A glorious, shining being in the Garden of Eden. So God glorifies creation. But then obviously creation glorifies God. I mean, how many... How many scientific discoveries have you read about and say, isn't this fascinating? Remember when I preached on that uh, bacterial flagellum here? A tiny little bacteria that you cannot even see with your eye. And there's like trillions of those things in your body. I can't remember the number. And you don't even know what it is. But without that little bug inside of your body with all of its fantastic properties, you cannot survive. 
You, you exist as a, you know, you keep living as a, as a result of the fact that you've got these, this massive microbiome in your body. And God knows all of those bugs. He knows how fast that thing's tail spins. He developed the motor that makes that thing be able to spin at 10,000 revs in one direction and stop and turn the other way. Just like a marvel to engineers all over the world. They can't believe that a, a little tail that long can have such properties that it can just stop and turn the other way at that speed without snapping off. So creation, I mean that's one thing, the bacterial flagellum, just Google it. It's absolutely fascinating. It's one thing that glorifies God and God's got a whole entire universe made out of these wonders. But then not only does God glorify creation and creation glorifies God, but each member of the Trinity glorifies the other members of the Trinity. People have often spoken about the tabernacle, how you've got the table in the tabernacle, and you've got the lampstand, and you've got the bread on the table. And they've often spoken about the fact that, you know, here's a table in a tent that nobody really ever sees except for the priests. I mean, the, the population never go in there. It's only the priests who come in. So why is there a table with a lampstand and a loaf of bread? What's the purpose of that? And of course, as we read about the Trinity, we discover something beautiful there. We discover that one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit in this world is to make Jesus look good. And there on the table in this dark room, apart from that one candle stand, right in front of that one candle stand is a loaf of bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus tells us. You're like, isn't this fascinating? You've got, you've got one, you know, just a candle and a loaf of bread and that's it. You know, apart from the incense altar in the corner. Then. The Spirit of God making the Son of God look beautiful. And I think that happens among all of the members of the Trinity. Remember the Son praying to His Father, glorify me. You know, He wants us to see His glory, the glory that God gave Him before the world began. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, He wants God to glorify Himself through Jesus. Just on and on in the, in the Bible, you see the members of the Trinity glorifying one another. In other words, you see God the Father saying, look at my son. This is my son. Listen to him. The Spirit is taking the believer and saying, look, look at God. And, and that is something that glorifies God. The, the Spirit is glorifying the Father in turning the minds of his people to God. Again and again, making us holy, separated, devoted to God. So God glorifies creation, creation glorifies God, each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity glorifies each other person of the Trinity, and the Trinity glorifies God's people. I mean, aren't we all longing for glorification? The day is going to come when you're going to look at me and I'm going to look like God in true righteousness and holiness, as Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 4. That's what I'm going to look like, I'm going to look like God. How is that even possible that a loser like me, you can look at me and say, wow, Alan, you look like God. God's going to have to perform a radical work in order to transform the lot of us into the image of God. Hey? The full image of God restored. So the Trinity glorifies God's people and thus the Trinity is glorified. Look at the work that God did in these people to make us like Jesus forever and ever. And every eye that sees me, every eye that sees you will be amazed. And we won't be amazed at you. I'll be amazed at God. Whew. God, what a work, man. Okay. So, three persons. Each of those three persons is fully God. But there's one God. We've seen the fact that each of those persons is God. We've seen that there's one God. And we've also seen that there are relationships between these persons of the Trinity. And the relationships are absolutely beautiful relationships where it's an others-focused relationship. Which is astounding. I mean, surely if you are God, you should be worshipped. Why would you constantly, as the Father being glorifying the Son, and the Holy Spirit sending glory to the Son and to the Father, you know, surely they could receive glory for themselves, but... It's, it's such an amazing reality in the Trinity that the members of the Trinity glorify the other members of the Trinity. Okay, now here's a, here's a great portion, here's a great section of what we're looking at today. 
And one of the realities inside of the Trinity among these three persons is that the three persons of the Trinity function in different ways. They each have a different function. So when we speak about the function of the Trinity, we're speaking about the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they function in different ways in relation to creation and in relation to redemption. So as far as salvation is concerned and as far as creation is concerned, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit functioning in different ways. So how do God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit relate to creation? And you'll notice right in the beginning, obviously we read Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But you'll hear God the Father speaking the word God plans, God um, creates this whole plan in his mind and he, he employs the Son and the Spirit to help him to, to put this entire plan into place. So you remember in Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. God just speaks. And the light appears. And of course, he's already created the heavens and the earth in verse 1. And now suddenly light dawns. There's no sun yet, of course. But God produces light over this, this primal world. And in John 1 verse 3, it was through him that all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So we see a relationship here. The Father planning this whole world, this whole universe... And he employs his son as the father speaks a word. We've already read John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The father speaks the word and the son becomes the agent of creation. And the agent begins to create all of these things. And that's why John 1 verse 3. You've got Genesis 1 verse 3 saying that uh, God said, let there be light. God uses his words and he speaks. And then in John 1 verse 3, through him all things were made. So we see God speaking and the world is made. And we see the Son, who is the Word, performing the creative action. The Son is coming and creating as the agent of creation. There are a number of other texts here that I put in brackets if you want to remember them. I'll put this presentation on the church group so you don't have to write them all down if you want to check them out later. But then God the Holy Spirit, He works together with the Son as the Son performs His work as the agent of creation. Genesis 1 verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the Father plans and speaks. And as the Father speaks, it is the Son who emerges and He does the creative work in, in close companionship with the Spirit of God. And obviously there's mystery in this. We can't understand all of the details. So that's creation. And then in redemption, we've got the Father planning again. The Father's the planner. But the Father does not accomplish this plan of redemption, nor does He apply the plan of redemption. The Father plans the plan of redemption. And that becomes important because we have these different words. We've got the word planning in redemption. We've got the word accomplishing in redemption. We've got the word applying. So the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies all of that redemption to His people. So what does the Father do? The Father plans in John 3.16. It is because God so loved the world. The Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So once again, you see the Father planning, and as the Father executes His plan, He sends out the Son to be the one who accomplishes the plan. So the Father plans, the Son accomplishes. He goes, and in a manner of speaking, I obviously can't say this about God, but He's the one who gets His hands dirty. He's the one who comes and actually gets the spanners, and He begins turning the bolts and nuts, and He does, he does the work. Galatians 4 verse 4, this is the text I was reading here last night, this was in my mind so much. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. So there you see the Father planning, and He says, okay, it's time. Son, it's time to go. And at the time, He sends His Son as the agent in to accomplish the plan that He has planned. In Ephesians 1 verse 9 and 10, 
And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed. It's the Father who's purposing all of this. He's planning and intending this plan, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. The God, God the Father saying, all right, the time has come for this to all begin to take place. And he sends the Son out as the agent of accomplishment. So the Father plans. The Father does not accomplish or apply. And then the second part of this is that the, the Son accomplishes. The Son does not plan or apply. I mean, a lot of words here. If, you, if you've been exposed to these words, they're technical terms we use in theology to distinguish one thing from another. But the Son does not plan or apply. The Son accomplishes. So in John 6 verse 38, the Son says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. You've got the Son accomplishing the will, the intention, the purpose of the Father. The Father saying, this is my intention, Son. And the Son says, yes, I'm going to go and do it, Father. And that's why we have in Hebrews 10 verse 7. I love this text there. I've thought about this text so much. Then I, that's Christ, as in verse 5 of that same chapter. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Father, I've come to do your will. And what did that cost the son? He knew everything it was going to cost him. And I'm going to speak about that in two weeks' time. But he says, I'm going to do it. Father, I can see your plan. It's glorious. And I'm going to step into the world. I'm actually going to do this. 33 years, I'm going to, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to accomplish everything you intend for me to accomplish. What a glorious reality, man. What a reason to worship God. Look at, the, look at the relationship between the persons of the Trinity where the Father plans something that is going to cost the Son dearly, but the Son says, yes, yes, yes. doesn't matter about the cost, Father. I love you so much. I want to do what you've planned and purposed because that's glorious and I want it too. And then thirdly, God the Holy Spirit applies the Son's accomplished work. So the Holy Spirit does not plan or accomplish. The Holy Spirit applies. So you've got the Father planning. You've got the Son accomplishing. You've got the Spirit applying. But neither of them, because there's diversity among the members of the Trinity, neither of them, not, not one of those members of the Trinity, infringes upon work of the other. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful to see. So the Holy Spirit, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit of God is taking the work, the redemptive work that the Son has accomplished, and He's saying, here, God, I'm applying this to Alan. I'm giving this guy spiritual life now. Boom. Whew. And the lights, the floodlights of the universe come on, and suddenly I can see God. John 3, 3, you remember what Jesus said, unless a man is born again, cannot see the kingdom of heaven, cannot see the kingdom of God. And suddenly I can see, I can see God is real. When I pray, I know I'm speaking to a person. I'm speaking to God Almighty and He's given me that privilege. That's the work of the Spirit to suddenly turn me on, switch me on and I can suddenly interact with spiritual realities. In John 14, 26, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Listen to this. And He will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Spirit is taking everything that Jesus has said and He is saying to His disciples, remember what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what Jesus said. And they're like, oh yes. And they write it down. And they write it down. And they write it down. And we have the Gospels. We have all of those sermons preached from the day of Pentecost through the, the book of Acts. Praise God for the Holy Spirit who reminded them everything Jesus taught. And I'm hoping that the more we look at all of these little details, that you say to yourself, isn't it, isn't it absolutely mind-boggling that God exists in this form and God can function in this way, diverse functions, but one God. In each of those persons of the Godhead, there's what we call in the Bible the evidence of one mind. It's one God, 
performing all of these works, and yet God is performing these works in a diverse way. It should be clear to you by now that if we did not have the Trinity, if we did not have the triune God, if we just had one God, we'd have no Savior, would we? If we just had one God, we would, we would be missing out on either planning, accomplishing, or applying. I mean, what would your salvation be if you had a father who planned? Let's say God was the father. And he planned this glorious plan, but there was no one to accomplish it or to apply it. Ah, it was a nice idea then. What if we only had somebody to actually accomplish a plan of salvation, but nobody to apply it? And where would the plan come from? So we need at least the Father and we need the Son. And what if there was a Holy Spirit who could apply very proficiently, but there was actually no accomplished salvation to apply to anybody? So when you sit and you look at this doctrine of the Trinity, you say, praise God that we have three persons and one God. Imagine one of those persons was not God. Imagine the Father was not God, but the Son and the Holy Spirit were God. Would the Father have been able to plan? No, it would have been a weak plan, full of holes, full of problems, etc. I mean, you can, just, you can think about this logically from step to step, and you can come to the point where you say, what a glorious God. Everything works. Everything is symmetrical. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. Everything's spot on. But let me say this one thing about the, the, the functions of the persons of the Trinity. And this is where I'm going to come to a little bit of application before I close. Notice that even though each member of the Trinity functions in a different way, according to creation and according to redemption, each member of the Trinity is equal. You've got equal Godhood. They equally God, all three of the persons, but they function in different ways. And what does that mean? It means that while God resides in eternal glory, the Son is walking on His feet on earth and taking, maybe when He's a baby, taking instructions from a sinful mom. The Father's not crawling around on the floor taking instructions from His mom. The Spirit of God is not crawling around on the floor taking instructions from a, a human mom. The Spirit of God is, is motivating and driving that baby Jesus to keep going. Keep going, it's going to be worth it. Keep going. Does it look like the Father who resides in glory is equal to the Son who's crawling around like a baby on the floor, having his nappy changed? It doesn't look like equality. But this doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that that baby on the floor, God the Son, is completely equal to God the Father who resides in heavenly glory. They're equal at all times, but the Son functions in that way. He takes on that task in order to function in that way, to accomplish the plan. But he's still equal. He's God of very God. He's the God-man. And that is astounding. And isn't it true that often in our world, that is where problems come in? And I said, I do a lot of marriage counseling. And one of the issues is that we have a problem in marriages when it comes to equality and function. Just because you're equal doesn't mean that each partner in this marriage must do exactly the same thing. Equality doesn't mean exactly the same function. I mean, obviously this is controversial in our day. But imagine you as a married couple decided it was going to be the husband who bears the children. And the wife that goes out to do the work. You know, bringing in the money. I mean, wives do go out and bring in money. But my point is, imagine you decided, husband, I think you should, you know, give birth to the children instead. You'll say, that's just bizarre. I mean, that's not a, a husband's function. And the members of the Trinity function in that same way. It's not the Father's function to accomplish. It's not the Father's function to apply. And even though those tasks do not look equal... There is equality in their personhood. And I think we need to take note of that because we can look at that and that's, a, that's something that will cause us to worship God. You say, isn't it absolutely glorious 
That God the, God the Son said to God the Father, Yes, I will be a baby. I will literally crawl on the floor in a dirty nappy. Even though I'm God, I will function in that way in order to bring glory to God. You can look at God and say, Oh, that is glorious. And if you want to think about how glorious that is, imagine God gave you the opportunity to go back to that baby stage right now, knowing everything you know about life. Imagine you became small and you crawled around with a dirty nappy and somebody's got to come and pick you up and say, Ooh, you smell. And take you somewhere to change that. Imagine you had to be, you know, with the same mind, the mind of God. You know, the sun is God. While he's crawling around. Imagine God had to shrink you right now to that. How embarrassing that would be. Isn't that a glorious point of worship that you can look at God and say, Thank you, God, that you are humble enough. You're willing to function. Even though you're equal to the Father, the Son is willing to function in that way in order to purchase, to accomplish my salvation for me. What a glorious reality, man. Absolutely amazing. Praise God that your salvation depends on this triune God and that God was willing to plan, accomplish and apply your salvation in order to save you. Praise God that even though there's diversity in the Trinity, God is also completely united in your salvation. Each person of the Trinity is completely committed, as we've seen, even between the Father and the Son. I will do this. Here I am. I've come to do your will, O oh God. And he crawls around on the floor like that and he dies in your place. He's willing to do that. He's willing to suffer and die. Praise God that each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is willing, united to the point where they're willing to perform in their functions in order to save your soul. Every Christian could, should come to know every person of the Trinity as precious because each member of the Trinity acted to save him. And then the second point of application is that you and I should worship God because in the, Trinity, in the Trinitarian gospel, you have a unique gospel. You're not going to find this gospel in any of the cults, any of the world religions. This is unique. It's the jewel. It is absolutely beautiful. And I want to say boldly that the Trinitarian gospel, the gospel that surrounds the triune God, the three-in-one God, is the only answer to global hatred. I mean, we are, we are swamped in hatred in our world. We're absolutely swamped with death and killing and misery and war. And I'm telling you now that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the triune God, is the only solution to global hatred. It's the only solution to this global epidemic of war. It is the only solution to greedy hearts. It is the only solution to pride. And the only solution to anarchy in this world. This gospel is the only solution to immorality. It is the only solution to perversion. It is the only solution for every broken life. It is the only solution to all of the human misery that we suffer in this world. If I did not absolutely believe that, I would give up preaching the gospel and I would give up counseling today. But because I believe that, because I believe that with all my heart, I believe in the triune God. And I see that in that God, there's a complete solution to every single problem that human beings face in this world. I keep preaching that and I keep teaching that and I will keep doing that until my last breath. By the grace of God. The triune God is the only God of compassion. List any other God you encounter in the world who's a God of compassion. The triune God is the only God who will make his people glorious as he himself is glorious forever and ever and ever. List one other God among the gods, the so-called gods, who has that as his intention. He's serving us. We're not serving Him. He's serving us. We've got nothing. We're beggars in His sight. And He's pouring out these riches onto us. And He's going to take us to be closer to Him than any other being in the universe forever. He's going to draw us into His personal space forever. I cannot think of one person in the world who would want me in His personal space forever and ever and ever. Eventually it will probably end up in a murder. 
But God, God wants me in His personal space. I can't, I can't fathom that, man. I can't get that. So we can worship God for that. In fact, Augustine called the Trinity the only true object of enjoyment. Just scrape everything away. If this is all you have, the triune God, you have the only object of true enjoyment. And then finally, just a final application here, is that we move on to, remember what we said about the relationships between the, the, the persons of the Trinity. Notice that even under such closeness and functioning in different ways, all of the pitfalls that you and I might experience, you know, equal, yes, husband and wife equal, but because the Bible gives husbands and wives different functions, there's fighting. We don't like to function in this way. You know, who's God, like Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey Him? You know, I don't like this. I don't like this function that God has put me into. You know, we fall into problems with that. So we can think about the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. And we should see the deep love in the Trinity, even in the different functions. And we can imitate that. We can say, yes, I'm an equal person. I'm a person made in the image of God with anybody else here. Even there's equality, even between me as a person and the smallest, most humble child in this room. There's no difference in equality as human beings before God. But we function in different ways. We don't have children preaching the gospel here. Why? Because there's a different function, different place in life. We should imitate that. We should seriously take, um, take note of the fact that even though there's equality as human beings, we function in different ways. We should look at God and say, thank you God for the function you've given me. If you called me to be that baby crawling on the floor while the Father sits in glory in heaven, surrounded by the heavenly host, God, help me to function well in that capacity. If I'm called to scrub the toilets, help me to serve well. If I'm, if I'm called to fix potholes in the streets, help me to do that well. If I'm called to be the manager of some financial firm, help me to do that well and not to be proud because I'm not more equal than somebody else. We're all equal, but we function in different ways. Just because someone has an important job doesn't mean he's an important person. He functions. His function is important. But that doesn't make him important. We're equal. And that's exactly what we learn from the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity works to make others look good. The Spirit, look at the Son. Look at the Son. The Father, look at the Son. Look at the Son. We could do that with one another in the church. We could look at each other and say we're equal. And we can see how a person performs his function and say, wow, that, man, that was good. I mean, this music team we were looking at leading us in worship just now, beautiful, amazing. We can go to somebody, even if, like, I mean, Nikhail won't mind me saying this, but I mean, he's on the stage here trying this out for the first time, borrowing his brother's guitar. I mean, not, not a lot of rehearsal, but wonderful to have the man functioning and performing inside of the church as a part of the body of Christ and saying, yes, I want to do this. Let me go for it. I know too many guys in the church who are too scared to get on the stage. My voice is not good or, you know, I'm, I'm only just learning this or that. We, we want you to function. We want to encourage you. We want, to, want you to be a blessing to other people. And we want to be a blessing to you. We want to encourage you and build you up and move you forward. And so that you'll grow more into the image of God and be glorious as God is glorious. Each member of the Trinity can rely on every other member of the Trinity. Can we rely on one another? Can we function in such a way? I mean, I forgot my keys yesterday when we had this big church celebration and I rock up here in my car and like, oh, I've forgotten the keys for the church hall. I mean, hey, you couldn't rely on me yesterday, but most other days you can rely on me. Can we rely on each other inside of our functions? Let's be the reliable person as the members of the Trinity they are the reliable person for every other person in the Trinity and then finally as each member of the Trinity functions this word is so big man each member of the Trinity functions contentedly inside of their function Jesus is no less content crawling around in a dirty nappy on the floor 
as the Father is content to be worshipped by the angels in glory for those 33 years as Jesus is on earth. They are contented. Each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is contented inside of his function. May God grant us the grace in this church not to be people who are bickering with each other and gossiping and trying to be elevated above one another, standing on each other to take a position of prominence, to gossip about somebody so that person looks bad and I look good. May God give us a gracious spirit among ourselves, a loving, devoted spirit, as we see in the Trinity, so that we'll be people who always make other people look good for any good that we see in them. To honor them inside of their function as equals before the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop breaking one another down. Let us function beautifully in the God-given roles that each one of us has. So in conclusion, I say our focus, if you fell asleep and you want the whole sermon, here's the sermon, okay, in a few words. Our focus on the Trinity today highlights the profound and mystical nature of God's existence as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are each fully God, yet collectively form one God. This doctrine is central to the Christian faith, influencing our understanding of sin, salvation, grace, and all the other key concepts. The unique roles and functions of each person of the Trinity in creation and redemption exemplify a harmonious relationship marked by deep love, mutual glorification, and interdependence. This theological truth calls for worship and awe as it reveals a God of compassion and glory, offering a solution to the world's ills. It also serves as a model for, for believers, encouraging them to emulate the Trinity's selfless love, reliance on one another, and contentment within their God-given roles, fostering unity and harmony in their relationships and communities. What a beautiful truth, man. Lord, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you that we are looking toward Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we even did that last night at our church function. Lord, thank you that we do have a God. We have a, do have a God that matches this description. We have three independent persons, and yet those three distinct persons form the one God. Thank you, Lord, that each member of the Trinity functions in a different way, even though each member is equal. And Lord, we pray that as we see the beautiful relationships between the persons of the Trinity, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see those as beautiful and to say, wow, that is glorious. I want that for my own life. And I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to move in our hearts as we just gaze upon God. We gaze upon the glory of God. And the more we gaze at the glory of God, help us, Lord, to want to imitate that. To imitate that wonderful contentment, even though equal, functioning in different ways. Even though living in such close proximity, complete satisfaction, complete love, complete joy, complete wonderfulness forever and ever and ever. And Lord, we thank you that the day is coming when you are going to draw us close, close, close to the triune God. And we're going to have a front row seat. We're going to be able to look right inside of those relationships, right inside of that glory, right inside of that contentment. We're going to hear the stories of what it was for Jesus to leave heaven's glory and to come into this world through the, through the womb of the Virgin Mary. We're going to hear the experience of Jesus as a man through his own lips. We're going to see through Jesus' own eyes what it was to be crucified and, and to die as God. And to be buried and to rise again from the dead and to see the surprise on his disciples' faces. And age after age to see people coming to a knowledge of salvation of their sins. And what glory and joy we're going to... We're going to sit and speak with Jesus about these things and just be overwhelmed by the Trinity. Glorious God. Glorious and wonderful God. And we pray, Lord, that that would begin now. You would help us to be overwhelmed by this glorious God. And the Lord, that we would have lives of worship 
and that those lives of worship would issue into our relationships, the way we treat each other, the attitudes that we have with each other, the love with which we receive one another, and the way in which we encourage each other to just keep moving and, and, and to rise up, to become more like the glorious beings that God created us to be. We just pray that you would help us to worship in this way. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name.